Praise the Lord. Hope you're excited to be here tonight. I'm excited. We need to be excited. We have the opportunity to dive into God's Word, and as that song just said, I think if we're going to turn the tide, we need to be excited about God's Word. This afternoon we were over and we had an opportunity to talk a little bit about camp and about the process of building up to that, and one of the things that Pastor mentioned was, was that passion is infectious. As we are passionate about something, other people see that and other people want to get on board. And friends, if we're going to turn the tide, we need to be passionate about God's Word. We need to be passionate about coming together and about fellowshipping and about growing in our love for each other and, and growing in our love for our God. We need to be passionate. So can I encourage you, be passionate. We're going to be in James tonight. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. We've been looking at the, the book of James, the letter of James, the letter written to believers. Tonight we're going to pick up in verse 13. So let's stand together and let's read verse 13 down to verse 18 together. James chapter 1, verses 13 down to verse 18. Verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot tempt with e be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Go ahead and sit down. In the preceding verses, as we lead into the verses we just read, verses 2 through 12 that we've studied before, James, who is, is writing to believers that have been scattered, writing to believers that are living in, in foreign lands, believers that maybe like us, maybe like you, are struggling with the complexities of life living in a society that is watering down the truth. And James talks about trials. He talks about the fact that God works through trials to mold us, to, to shape us, to conform us into the image of, of God's Son. And that we as believers, as we work out, as we work through those trials, God blesses us. James makes a couple of statements in these first few verses. And if you will, let's look back up to verse 2. Let's have a look at that. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, 
wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive any good, anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Verse 9, let the brother of a low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away, for the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to them that love him. We took away some lessons, and perhaps you could say we took some application from these verses. We learned that we need to to recognize the value in the trial and then rejoice. We need to, to see that there is value in the trial that we're going through and then rejoice. We also learned that we need to ask for wisdom within the trial. That wisdom provides us to to with the ability to, to work through that trial in a manner that glorifies God. It's not just about getting through the trial. It's about getting through the trial in a manner that I grow, in a manner that I I better glorify God. We learn that we cannot waver within the trial. We must not surrender to the flesh, but we must be surrendered to the will of the Father. As we came down to verse 9 through 12, we saw that it doesn't matter what your social standing is, it doesn't matter what your economic standing is, that we all go through trials. As believers, it doesn't matter what your position, your earthly position is, we all go through trials and that those trials, they grow us. As we endure, God blesses that. The blessing in the trial is that we grow in our godliness, we grow in our Christ-likeness. We grow in our relationship and in our fellowship with the Father within the trial. But now as we come down to verse 13, James shifts gears. Up until now, James has been talking about trials, the the, the wrestle, the enduring that is positive. He's been talking about surrender and sanctification. It may not seem positive while we're in the trial, but as we trust God in those struggles, there's value. And here in verse 13, he changes direction. He changes to talking about temptation that leads to sin. There's a shift from temptation or trials that lead to growth and now to temptation that leads to sin and separation. This evening in these verses, 
We're going to see the cycle of temptation. And then we're going to put in place some practical things that we can put into our lives to help us to resist temptation so that we don't fall into sin. Let's pray together and then let's delve into this. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. Father, we do not deserve your goodness. Father, we are weak people. Father, we sin and we sin and we sin and yet you still love us. So, Father, tonight as we study your word, I pray that you would convict our hearts where our hearts need to be convicted. Father, that we would be sensitive to your word, that we would be sensitive as the Holy Spirit exposes things in our lives. And, Father, we would desire to deal with those things so that we can be closer to you, we can have better fellowship with you. And, Father, if there's anything in me tonight that would cause me to... To take your word wrongly, Father, I pray that you would, you would protect us here. Father, we love you. In your name, amen. James 1.13 Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So he says in that first verse there, verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted. More precisely, what he is saying is let no man say that when he is enticed to sin, enticed to evil. I mean, enticed to sin by God. He says, let no man say that. Now look at the next part of that verse because he explains why we can't say that. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God cannot be enticed with evil. It's against his very nature. God can have nothing to do with sin. In 1 John 1, 5, we see that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. God can have nothing to do with sin. God is holy, he is righteous, he has nothing to do with sin. We have a a sin nature that comes with Adam, but in God, in God there is no sin. Sin is at odds with his nature. In him there is no darkness. Verse 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Look at the next part, neither tempteth he any man. Categorically, God does not tempt with evil. God does not tempt us to sin. To do that would require God to have a closeness. He would have a a familiarity with sin. In order for God to tempt us with sin, to use sin, He would have to have some sort of a closeness with sin. And that's against his very nature. God is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. In other words, God always acts in a manner that is consistent with his own character. Always. 
There is no sin in him. And if our thinking is that God tempts us to sin, we have a completely warped perspective of God and we have a warped perspective of sin. Think about it for a moment. Why would God who hates sin... God who sent his son to die for our sin. Why would God use sin to bring him to himself like that? Makes no sense. It's against his character. James's point, God does not tempt with evil. Trials like we saw in the verse First 12 verses draw us to a closeness with God as we endure, as we surrender to the will of Father. But when we, are, when we are enticed to sin, when we surrender to sin, there's nothing positive in that. Look at the next two verses with me because he's going to explain some, some hard truths here. He's going to explain some truths that would, should cause us to examine our heart. In verse 12, we see temptation, enticement to sin doesn't come from God. So if that's the case, where does it come from? Have a look at verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of what? What's he drawn away with? His own lusts and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And James uses this phrase, drawn away. It's a hunting term, or maybe even you could say it's a fishing term. It carries with it this picture of being lured away. The other night we had the couple's night, and there was some, I'm trying to think of the word for the poetry, there was some poetry, let's say, some fantastic poets and some mediocre poets. But one of the things that got me thinking about was when Sarah and I got married. Now, we made a monumental mistake, and I'm not talking about Sarah made a monumental mistake. I'm talking about we made a monumental mistake when we planned our wedding. We planned our wedding day for the opening day of hunting season in America. Now, for those of you who are not Americans, which is 90% of you here, that means probably very little. But in America, hunting day is a massive deal. All the men disappear into the jungle wearing camouflage and orange, carrying guns, only to come back again carrying the heads of strange animals. Now, some people in Australia hunt, but we don't have the same, the same sort of culture as what they have there. Have you ever seen that show? I think it was called Duck Dynasty or Duck Hunter or something like that. Yeah, all those men with really long beards. And they sort of, every now and then, they would hunt for something on television. Most of the time, they did it poorly. But part of their business, or in fact, the reason that they became as successful as they were was because they made these calls. They made these whistle-like devices that would make the noise that would attract the animals. Now, I think that's cheating, but anyway, 
That's a little bit like what James is talking about here. How many of you like to fish? There's probably five people. Good job. <laughs> For those of you who don't, I understand I don't like to fish. There is very few things more boring than fishing, than sticking some sort of a pretend look-alike animal onto a hook and throwing it in the water in the hopes that some innocent fish will come and bite that. The whole idea is that that lure is attractive. That lure is as realistic as it can be. Nobody throws a lure into the water with another fish that's bigger than the fish you're trying to catch, do they? Because it just wouldn't work. It needs to be attractive. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Lured away by our own lust. Why? Because it's attractive. Every man is tempted, lured into sin by his own lust, your own lust, your own heart paints that sin to be something that it is not. Your heart paints that sin to be something that is attractive. Understand this, temptation begins with your own desire. Now, not all of our temptations, not all of our desires are evil. But every desire has the potential to become evil, to become sin, when it's not placed in the right perspective, when it's not placed in this right place before God. When we read this verse, we can't escape the fact that there is real, there is absolute personal responsibility in this. We can't blame someone else, something else, and we can't blame God. It's my heart. We have to take ownership of our actions. The world keeps saying that it's society. The world keeps saying that it's the education system that's failing. The world keeps saying that it's the failure of governments. The world keeps saying it's the breakup of the family structure. The world keeps saying that it is drugs. Scripture tells us that it's my own lust. It's my desire. It's my cravings. It's my longings for something that is forbidden, something that is against the holiness of God. Anything that is going to draw my heart away from God. Friends, it is your heart that lures you into sin. Verse 15, and when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In the place where desire, where craving, where longing and opportunity meet, we find disaster. 
we find destruction. We find separation. In these verses, we see the cycle for temptation to sin. The first thing we see here is we see attraction. Sin is attractive. Why? Because our perspective of it in relation to God is wrong. My sin is attractive to me because my perspective of my sin in relation to a holy God is wrong. And so my heart paints it as attractive. We have attraction, then we have deception. We deceive ourselves within our own hearts that God is somehow withholding that from us. It's good for me, but God is somehow withholding that from me. We deceive ourselves. I deserve that. It's actually good for me. We have attraction, deception, and then we have preoccupation. And once we've convinced ourselves that the sin that we're being tempted by is okay, we become preoccupied with it. We become focused on it. And after preoccupation comes conception. Sin is born. And then subjection. We become addicted to that sin. And then finally, desperation. Eventually, when we realize that that sin cannot fulfill us, that that sin cannot satisfy, that that sin cannot bring lasting joy, that that sin is corrupting me, that that sin is impacting my relationship with God, that that sin is impacting my relationship with my brothers and sisters, we, we come to this point of desperation. And if we're saved, that desperation brings us back to the feet of the cross. We come back to God, hopefully in humility, And we get right before God. James says in the last part of that verse, when sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. It bringeth forth separation. What's the impact of of sin in the life of the believer? If it's not dealt with, well, we know that we can't lose our salvation, but there's a separation in our fellowship with God. We don't have time tonight to go through this in detail. Pastor talked about it a bit this morning, but let me help you with this. Sin always, always, always has an impact. In 1 Thessalonians, we see that sin quenches it. It throws a wet blanket on the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John, we see that sin robs us of our joy. He says, I write to you that your joy might be full. How can my joy be full if I'm I'm surrendering to sin? Sin robs me of that joy. In Philippians, we see that it robs us of our peace. And let the peace of God rule in your heart. It can't rule in my heart if I'm letting sin rule in my heart. In 1 John also, it tells us that it hinders 
of fellowship with God. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we don't walk in darkness, we lie. I can't have fellowship with sin and fellowship with God. Sin always has an impact on your fellowship with God. Sin always has an impact on your fellowship with other believers. No matter how secret you think your sin is, it always has an impact. But James very kindly doesn't just leave us there. Lest we become discouraged, he gives us hope. And in verse 15, we see the, we see the balance point in these verses. We see pastoral love here. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't make this mistake. Don't, don't let this trick you. Don't be deceived. Don't begin to think that temptation comes from God. Don't go there. Believer, don't go there. God can have nothing to do with sin. So what's the answer to my problem? And how do I deal with the fact that it's my heart that's drawing me away? Look at the next verses. Because this is where we see hope. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down for the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This evening, understand that the start point to victory over temptation is enjoying a deep-seated conviction and confidence in the absolute goodness of God. A deep-seated confidence in the absolute goodness of God. Grasp this because if you do, it will change your life. Look at me here. God provided you with everything that you need for your satisfaction and for your joy, not just physically and spiritually. God provides you with everything you need to live a joy-filled life and to be completely satisfied. God provides you with that. But until we grab hold of that, until I rest in the fact that God is good and God intends good for me, I'm going to continue to look for satisfaction. I'm going to continue to look for joy somewhere else. God isn't the God who provides the bare minimum. Every good gift and every perfect gift. This isn't a carrot and stick scenario. The God of love who wants a moment by moment relationship with you 
with everything that you have, he gives you everything you need. He gives you the gift of salvation all the way to the gift of your satisfaction and your joy. And he gives that to you. Perhaps we've developed a pattern of thinking that says, I know I can trust God to fulfill my spiritual needs. I know I, know I can trust God with that. I can trust God with my salvation. I can, I can trust God to help me as I, as I study his, his Word because I know that the Holy Spirit indwells me and the Holy Spirit, one of His roles is to guide me in truth. I know I can trust God with my spiritual welfare. And I know that, that if I pray, God will provide for me physically. But so often our mentality is that, that the rest of it is my responsibility. If I want to be truly happy in life, then I've got to figure out some way to do that around what God's doing in me spiritually and around what God's doing for me physically. Somehow, within the mix of that, somehow I have to figure out how can I be happy in this? How can I, how can I be satisfied in this? I know God's doing that. I know God's doing that. But somehow I've got to provide the rest of this. That's not the case. God provides for our satisfaction and our joy. And as we trust him, he does that for us. Can I be blunt tonight, maybe just a little bit direct for a moment? If you are contradicting scripture or going outside of the guidelines provided in scripture... To find joy, to find satisfaction, you're living in sin. And it won't last. You may have momentary joy. And you might find some satisfaction. But it's not going to last. And it's impacting your fellowship with God and it's impacting your fellowship with other believers. God provides you, the believer, with everything that you need for your joy and for your satisfaction, as well as everything that you need for your spiritual life and your physical life. God provides you with that. Listen to what? The psalmist says in Psalm 77, verse 11, he says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also on thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. But how often do we create a God out of our joy? We elevate our joy and our satisfaction against the God of wonders. And we say, I can find my own joy. I can do things that give me satisfaction. 
and we rob God of the opportunity to give us lasting joy and lasting satisfaction. So how do I combat my own heart? The start point is to be convicted by the fact that God is good and that God intends good for me. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You know this verse, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is good. Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love towards us. There's movement of God's love to us. That while we were yet sinners, when I was as far away from God as I could possibly be, God was good. God intends good for us. Psalm 34, verse 8. I love this verse. He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience that the Lord is good. Come down to verse 18 with me. It says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, unprompted by us, God chose us. One of Satan's tricks is to... uh, make us think or, or cause us to think that in some way God is holding out on us. In some way God is refraining from giving us what we need, things that are pleasurable, things that are desirable. That's what Satan does. Look at the Garden of Eden when Satan approached Eve. His approach to her was to get her to question the goodness of God. And Pastor talked about this. Question the goodness of God. If God really loved you, he would allow you to eat of that tree. Question God's goodness. You look at his approach to Jesus. He says, if your father loved you, why are you hungry? Question God's goodness. Here's the thing when I'm confident God means the best for me when I'm convicted that God is good, when I believe it at my core, when I find my satisfaction in God, my my joy in God, it acts as this great shield against Satan. So how do we apply that? How How do we take some application out of what James has said here? How do I deal with my temptation? How how do I deal with my heart? Because we can't be complacent about sin. What do we do? How do we deal with it? Well, first of all, we deal with it immediately. When temptation arises, deal with it immediately. Don't let it simmer. Don't let it boil away in the back of your mind thinking it's, it's going to go away. Don't let it do that. Deal with it. Go to God with it immediately. Cut it off. 
Listen to what Paul says in Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, flee also youthful lust. Flee, run away from it. Cut it off. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, wherefore my delivered, beloved, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee. Run away. Get as far away from it as you can. He doesn't say stay and fight. He says flee. If you're anything like me, you don't like to run away from a challenge. I like a challenge. And as men, so often we're we're raised to not back down, to stand up for what's right. But that's not what he's talking about here. And women, maybe you were raised in a household where you were raised to be strong, independent women. And that's great, but that's not what he's talking about here. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have within us this desire, this, this pride. It says, it doesn't have control over me. This pride that says, I can fight it. This pride that says, I don't need help. This pride that says, if I, if I knuckle down, if I just try hard enough, if I exert enough energy, if I put enough mental rigor into this, if I, if I do that, I can win. But you can't win. Paul says, flee. The victory is in fleeing, not staying there with it. 1 Timothy 6.11 But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast possessed a good possession before many witnesses." The word fight in this context literally means to agonize. It applies to both athletes and soldiers. This is a striving, a straining, an agonizing to give their absolute best to win the prize. The fight isn't against sin. The fight, the agonizing, the contending is for the faith. The struggle, the wrestle is for the faith. I'm doing everything that I can to live a life that is characterized by the things that he talks about in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, righteousness, goodness, faith, love, patience, meekness. That's what I'm fighting for. That's what I'm striving to. And look at the next part. He says, lay hold on eternal life. Confirming your own mind, be encouraged by the fact that you are eternally secure in the Father's hands. When I'm living in sin, when I'm struggling with temptation, I begin to doubt my salvation. I begin to question the goodness of God. I begin to question whether I've done enough. But when I'm following after, when I'm fighting, when I'm striving, 
when I'm agonizing, when I'm in contending, when I'm doing everything I can to press towards the mark. I'm reassured of my salvation. I'm reassured of where I stand in Christ. I'm reassured of who I am as a child of God. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course I have kept the faith. But look back at 2.22 again, 2 Timothy 2.22. I hope you're seeing this. It says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So we have clear instructions on what to do. Flee sin, follow righteousness. Faith, charity, peace. Do all of that. Fight the good fight. Contend for the faith. Press towards the mark. Maybe I can give you an example. In the military, we have what is called a fighting withdrawal. Essentially, it is a a planned out, practiced out way of withdrawing from an overwhelming enemy that gives us a tactical advantage. But in order to achieve that, there's a few things that have to be put in place. One, the the route or the the way of, of withdrawal has to be briefed or is always briefed in orders. Why? So that everybody knows. Everybody knows how we're going to withdraw. Where are we withdrawing to? What's the route? How are we doing that? Who's going where? It's always briefed in orders. The route of withdrawal is also always reconnoitered. Somebody does reconnaissance on that route to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that it is possible to withdraw that way. And the destination that we're withdrawing to is always somewhere that the fighting force can break away from the enemy within. There's no point withdrawing to somewhere where you're still in the fight. Where you're withdrawing to should give you the tactical advantage. Our way of fleeing from sin, our fighting withdrawal from sin is presented to us in orders. We have the instructions. This isn't a mystery. It's not a mad scramble to get away. The Word of God, and it gives us clear instructions. The reconnaissance has been done. Jesus demonstrated the way. And as we trust Him and as we follow His lead, He leads us away from sin. Friends, deal with temptation immediately. Flee from sin. Follow after things that help us to break away from the snares, the lures of the devil, and do it. Look at the last part of that verse. With them that call in the name of the Lord. We flee sin with them that call in the name of the Lord. That leads us into our second step tonight. Be honest. When I'm dealing with temptation, temptation that leads me into sin, be honest about it. Be honest with God about it. 
You know where you are weak. Be honest with yourself about it. Any military force that underestimates its own weaknesses will soon be overrun. And a believer that underestimates the lure of sin will soon be surrendering to sin. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God about it. Look at verse 14 again. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Don't try and disguise your sin as something else. Don't try and talk it away. Just be honest with it. Cultivate enmity with your sin. Rebel against the coup, the uprising that sin is developing within your heart. Rebel against it. Declare allegiance to the other side and consciously present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. We need to be honest with God. We need to be honest with ourselves, but we also need to be honest with each other. Seek accountability from those around you that desire for you to increase in your relationship with God. We like to surround ourselves with people that sing the same song as us. We like to surround ourselves with people that, that pad our ego. We need to surround ourselves. If we're going to walk in a manner that's pleasing to God, we need to surround ourselves with people that are going to, going to every now and then pull us into line. They're going to say to us, hey, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is displeasing to God. And it's hurting the rest of us. The third one here, and we're almost done. Be relentless. Be ruthless. Cut sin off at its source. In business, when you're, you're serious about productivity, when you're, you're serious about growth, we do an evaluation. Michael did, I don't know how many evaluations with me over the last 10 years. You look for things that, that are causing revenue loss. You look for things that, that, are, that are causing weakness within the business. You're looking things that are poor performers. In fact, I think I heard Danny talking about this just a couple of weeks ago as he did an evaluation of his own business. And we need to do that in our own lives. We continually need to look at our lives and ask the questions, what are the things, what are the moments, what are the occasions in my life that lend opportunity for that sin that I, that I wrestle with to take hold? What are the practical steps that I need to put in place? Understand this, that when you un open the door for one sin, you open the door for all manner of sin. Romans 13, 14 says, Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. No provision for the flesh. I'm not giving any room to the flesh. So we saw that we need to deal immediately. We need to be honest we need to be ruthless, and finally, we need to deal with temptation consistently. Always deal with it, and always deal with it in a consistent manner. 
If I'm consistent in my walk with God, I will be consistent in how I deal with temptation and sin. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, But I keep my body and I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Be consistent about how you deal with temptation. Train your body. Train your mind. He says in Romans 12, 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do I renew my mind? By spending time in God's Word. By spending time with other believers who are going to speak into my life. Renew your mind. Deal with sin in a consistent manner. Verse 18, James 1, 18. We should be the kind of first fruits of His creatures. The Jewish believers understood exactly what James was saying here. This is the, this word first fruits is, a, is something that they would have known from the Old Testament Jews and they understood that the, the first fruits were to be given to the Lord as an expression of their love for him, as, a, as an expression of their devotion to him. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with thy substance and with thy first fruits the first fruits of all thy increase. Believers, we are the first fruits, the most valued, the crown of creation. Only we were created in the image of God. None of the other creation was created in the image of God. And we are to live in a manner that reflects that. As a new creation in Christ, we can overcome temptation. Our new nature is in Christ. He has conquered death and the grave. He is the victor and you can have victory because you are in him. So let's wrap it up. Why should I apply these truths? Why should I... Be proactive and deliberate about dealing with my sin. And when we look at what James is writing and we, we view it through the lens of the gospel and we, we view it through the grand narrative of God's redemptive plan for us and we should always view scripture through that. We see how a loving God who wants to be involved in the minutiae of our lives not because he is a busybody or a control freak, because he loves you and it is within the minutiae of your life, within the small details, that change will occur. As we look at what James is writing within, with the gospel in view, we see a God who loves us so much that he is continually molding us and shaping us as believers into people that can better bring glory and honor to him. Yes, we see a God that, that provides for us within those trials, that within those trials as we endure, as we trust God, as we walk in faith, there is growth and there is maturing. But he also still knows that within us there is still a nature, there's still a selfishness in me. My heart seeks to satisfy itself. Within me, within my flesh, there is a deep-seated selfishness. 
And in his love for me and in his hatred for my sin, there's a response to my sin. There has to be a judgment for my sin. Yes, in his love for us, he provided Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, but my sin still impacts my fellowship with God. And God, in his love for us, provided us a way to have victory over sin. And that's through our fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's through consistency in the word of God. That's through dealing with sin immediately. That's through not letting it fester in our lives. So why should I deal with sin? Because you're a child of God. Because you're no longer a slave to sin. Look at one last verse with me and then we'll close. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. So walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Friends, tonight, victory comes when we walk in him. Victory comes when we are rooted and built up in him. Victory comes when we are established and when we are firm in the faith. Victory comes when we deal with temptation immediately. Victory comes when we are honest with ourselves and with God about our struggles. We deal with our sins in view of the gospel. Victory comes when we are ruthless about sin and when we deal with it consistently. But ultimately, victory comes when we rest, when we are confident in, when we are convicted by the goodness of God. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Father, grateful that James wrote this letter to these believers, these believers that in many cases are struggling with similar things that we wrestle with here, a society that desires to water down your truth. So, Father, I'm grateful tonight that you have given us your word, and, Father, we can apply it to our lives. Father, I pray tonight that we would choose to flee sin and to fight the good fight. Father, we would understand that, that that temptation to sin doesn't come from you, that comes from our own hearts, our own lusts. And Father, we would recognize where we are weak. And Father, we would deal with those sins. Father, we love you in your name, amen.